Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 30, The Light That Never Was, 1895 to 1896. Hello everyone, welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. After watching Tesla's lab burn last episode, we'll pick up this time with the rest of 1895 and the very early part of 1896, as Tesla picks up the pieces and begins to rebuild his lab and decide what he'll spend the rest of his career working on. But before we do that, I want to take just a minute to thank a couple of people who left reviews since the last episode, and to tell you about a really worthwhile initiative that I'm hoping we can all be a part of. So thank you to Joseph Adams, who got in touch via Facebook to say, thanks for an amazing show filled with insight, knowledge, and great entertainment. The way the story is narrated, it's as though you're there witnessing it. Tesla has always intrigued me, and what I have learned here is amazing and entertaining. Special thanks as well to listeners Delkeja and jcarve81, who were kind enough to leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts in the US. Delkeja was excited that the show is back from hiatus. So am I. And jcarve81, who works for the U.S. Postal Service, said, Binge listened to this entire podcast over a few days while delivering mail. Very sad there isn't any more and the story is not complete. I will patiently await the next installment. Well, jcarve81, just for you, here it is. Thank you as well to Gabrielle, who left a five-star review over on podchaser.com all the way back in December 2020. She says, Stephen Kotowicz provides a fantastic long-form podcast about the many facets of Tesla and his brilliance. You'll enjoy this podcast. Thank you, Gabrielle. Why did it take me 16 months to find Gabrielle's review? Well, it's because I don't think I knew that Podchaser was a thing back then, but I do now because I had occasion to be on their site and set up a profile for the show. And why, you may ask? Well, as you know, I encourage everyone to leave reviews for the show on whatever podcast player you use. But what if I told you that for the rest of this month, April 2022, as this episode is released, you can both leave a review and do some real-world good in the process? Until the end of the month, if you leave a review for this podcast over at podchaser.com, they will donate 25 cents to World Central Kitchen, the global hunger action group founded by Chef Jose Andres which will be using the money to provide food for Ukrainian refugees. And with a last name like Kotowicz, you can imagine all things Ukrainian are near and dear to my heart, especially now. To date, World Central Kitchen has already served more than 10 million meals to those in the conflict zone. And that need, sadly, doesn't look to be slowing down anytime soon. But that's not all, because every time the podcaster, that's me, responds to a review left this month, which I will, Podchaser will double the donation to 50 cents. Plus, there are several podcasting companies who will also be matching donations on top of that. One of those, Libsyn, will be matching donations made for all Libsyn-hosted podcasts that get reviewed during the window. And wouldn't you know it, my show happens to be hosted through Libsyn. So, just like power-ups in your favorite video game, I think these buffs will stack. So, one review could end up being... What, a couple of dollars to support feeding Ukrainian refugees? That's not bad. We could raise some real money for a good cause. Podchaser is sort of like IMDB. It's a database of podcasts, the people who work on them, and people who have been guests on them. This fundraising drive is part of Podchaser's annual Reviews for Good campaign, now in its third year. So, even if you've left me a review somewhere before on some other platform, you can still leave a review over on Podchaser. I will also be reading your reviews on the show, just like always. So, this is a very easy way to help raise some money for a good cause, and it won't cost you a thing. I'll include a direct link to my Podchaser page at the top of the show notes for this episode over on this show's website. Or, if I've set things up correctly, you should be able to go to podchaser.com slash teslapodcast directly and leave a review there. Thanks in advance for all your help. So this episode covers the latter part of 1895, after the fire at Tesla's lab. And since we only covered events from the first half of 1895 last time, let's take a look at historical goings-on from the second half of that year. On June 28th, the United States Court of Private Land Claims ruled that James Addison Rivas's claim to the Barony of Arizona was, quote, wholly fictitious and fraudulent. What was the Barony of Arizona? I was hoping you'd ask. 
The Barony of Arizona was a pair of land claims which, if certified, would have granted James Addison Rivas ownership of 18,600 square miles, that's 84,200 square kilometers, of land in central Arizona Territory and western New Mexico Territory. You see, under the terms of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Gadsden Purchase, the United States was required to recognize and honor existing land grants made by either the Spanish or Mexican governments. Now, Rivas was an American forger and fraudster, and the land claims he made were fake. He used the provision of the treaty to manufacture his first fictional claim, and then generated a collection of documents demonstrating how the claim came into his possession. The documents were then covertly inserted into various public archives, so everything looked nice and legit. When challenges to this claim developed, however, Rivas developed a second claim by marrying the purported last surviving lineal descendant of the original claim recipient, while it appears he was already married to another woman. Rivas secured the endorsement of a number of prominent politicians and business leaders for his, unbeknownst to them, false claims, and managed to collect an estimated $5.3 million in cash and promissory notes, that's $165 million in present-day money, through the sale of quick claims and proposed investment plans for his barony. Exposure of his fraud only happened because Rivas didn't know when to quit when he was ahead. Instead of disappearing quietly with millions of dollars from these investors and living a life of luxury, when an unfavorable Surveyor General report caused the claim to be summarily dismissed, Rivas sued the U.S. government for $11 million in damages, which is $338 million in present-day dollars. Needless to say, this didn't go unnoticed by Uncle Sam. When the U.S. government began to investigate, the Rivas forgeries came to light, and he got a very different day in court from the one he was expecting. He served 21 months of a 24-month sentence for fraud. On August 19th, American frontier murderer and outlaw John Wesley Hardin is killed by an off-duty policeman in a saloon in El Paso, Texas. 72 years later, Bob Dylan would release an album named after him, though the album misspells his last name as Harding. On September 3rd, the first professional American football game was played in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, between the Latrobe YMCA and the Jeanette Athletic Club. Latrobe won 12-0. Just a few days later, across the pond, on September 7th, the first game of rugby league football is played in England. In October, the London School of Economics holds its first classes in London, England. And after two years of avoiding movie theaters except to see the new Dune movie, twice, by the way, once in IMAX, both times in an N95 respirator like a Fremen in a still suit. It's nice to note that on November the 1st, 1895, the Berlin Winter Garden Theater was the site of the first ever cinema, with a short film presented by the Skladanowski brothers. On November 8th, William Rotengen discovers a new type of radiation, later called X-rays. His first paper detailing his findings was published later that year on December 28th. More on that in a few minutes. On November 25th, Oscar Hammerstein opens the Olympia Theater, the first theater to be built in New York City's Times Square district. The theater was at Broadway and 44th Street, and is currently occupied by a Gap and an Old Navy. On November 27th, at the Swedish-Norwegian Club in Paris, Alfred Nobel signs his last will and testament, setting aside his estate to establish the Nobel Prize after his death, which would come just over a year later, on the 10th of December 1896. Nobel was inspired to found the prizes given in his name when, having read a premature obituary entitled The Merchant of Death is Dead, which condemned him for profiting from the sale of arms, he invented dynamite and was a major manufacturer of cannons and other armaments, Nobel realized that death and destruction would be all that he'd be remembered for. So he bequeathed his fortune to the Nobel Prize Institution, and today almost no one except annoying podcast hosts associates his name with armaments. On December 11th, Svante Arrhenius presents his paper on the influence of carbonic acid in the air upon the temperature of the ground to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Arrhenius thus became the first scientist to use principles of physical chemistry to estimate the extent to which increases in atmospheric carbon dioxide are responsible for the Earth's increasing surface temperature, what we today would call the greenhouse effect. 1895. So, you can't claim that we weren't warned. And, since we just mentioned Nobel, it's worth noting that Arrhenius received the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1903, becoming the first Swedish Nobel laureate. In 1905, he became director of the Nobel Institute, where he remained until his death in 1927. And, on December 28th, brothers Auguste and Louis Lumière display their first moving picture film in Paris. 
1895 could fairly be dubbed the year of the automobile race, as users of the new technology began to agree... I feel the need, the need for speed. On May 18th, the first motor race in Italy is held. It runs on a course from Turin to Asti and back, a total of 93 kilometers, or 58 miles. Five entrants start the event, but only three complete it. It is won by Simone Fetterman in a four-seat Daimler Omnibus at an average speed of 15.5 kilometers an hour, which is just under 10 miles an hour. Between September 24th and October 3rd, 1895, the Automobile Club de France sponsors the world's longest race to date, a 1,710-kilometer, or 1,060-mile event from Bordeaux to Agen and back. Because it's held in 10 stages, it is also considered the first rally race. The first three-place automobiles are a Panhard, a Panhard, and a three-wheeled D. Dion Bouton. These French-manufactured vehicles almost don't look like what we would think of today as automobiles. If you look them up online, they really do look like horseless carriages. On November the 5th, George B. Selden is granted the first U.S. patent for an automobile, and a couple of weeks after that, on November the 28th, the first American automobile race is sponsored by the Chicago Times-Herald. The accompanying press coverage is what first arouses significant American interest in the automobile. Famous births in 1895 include, on June 5th, American actor William Boyd, best known for portraying the cowboy hero Hopalong Cassidy, is born. In 1935, as part of a comeback effort, Boyd campaigned for and won the role of Hopalong Cassidy. Transformed from the original hard-drinking, rough-living, red-headed wrangler character who had appeared in pulp magazines, the movie version of Hopalong became a cowboy hero who did not smoke, swear, drink alcohol, and who always let the bad guy start the fight. Boyd estimated that by 1940, he had starred in 28 outdoor films in which he fired an estimated 30,000 shots and killed at least 100 bad guys, which he naturally called varmints. He wore out 12 costumes and 60 10-gallon hats, rode his horse Topper more than 2,000 miles, and rode herd on 5,000 head of cattle. Though he saved more than 20 heroines, he was never once shown kissing one. The series of films ran until 1948, by which time interest in the character had waned. Boyd sold or mortgaged almost everything he owned to pay the studio $350,000, over $4 million today, for the rights to Hopalong and the film catalog. Boyd took a print of an old Hopalong adventure to his local NBC television station and offered them the right to air the film on TV on the cheap, hoping for new exposure. The film was so well received that NBC asked for more, and within months, Boyd released the entire library to the national network. They became extremely popular and began the long-running genre of westerns on television. Boyd's desperate gamble paid off, making him the first national TV star and restoring his personal fortune. Boyd licensed merchandise, Hopalong Cassidy watches, trash cans, cups, dishes, tops trading cards, a comic strip, comic books, cowboy outfits, and a new Hopalong Cassidy radio show, which ran from 1948 to 1952. Merchandising, merchandising, where the real money from the movie is made. And your fun fact for today. In the 1950s, Boyd's old director pal Cecil B. DeMille reportedly asked him to take the role of Moses in his remake of the Ten Commandments. But Boyd felt that his identification with the Cassidy character would make it hard for audiences to accept him as Moses, and so he turned DeMille down. The role instead went to Charlton Heston, another regular player in DeMille's films. American heavyweight boxer William Harrison Jack Dempsey was born on June 24, 1895. Nicknamed the Manassa Mauler, Dempsey was the world heavyweight champion from 1919 to 1926. A cultural icon of the 1920s, Dempsey's aggressive fighting style and exceptional punching power made him one of the most popular boxers in history. Many of his fights set financial and attendance records, including the first million-dollar gate. He pioneered the live broadcast of sporting events in general, and of boxing matches in particular. Karl Orff, German composer and music educator, was born on July 10th. Best known for his 1937 cantata Carmina Burana, Orff's music reflected his interest in medieval German and Latin poetry. Fortuna Imperiatrix Mundi, commonly known as O Fortuna, from Carmina Burana, which you can hear playing in the background, is often used to denote primal forces, for example in the movies Excalibur or in Oliver Stone's film The Doors. Richard Buckminster Fuller, 
an American architect, systems theorist, designer, inventor, philosopher, critic of work, futurist, and author of more than 30 books, was born July 26th. Fuller developed numerous inventions, mainly architectural designs, and popularized the geodesic dome. Fuller was so closely tied to the geodesic dome in popular and scientific imagination that carbon molecules known as fullerenes were later named in his honor because of their structural and mathematical resemblance to geodesic spheres. He also served as the second world president of Mensa International from 1974 to 1983, so, you know, kind of a sharp tack. American radio, television, film, and vaudeville star Gracie Allen was born on September 18th. She became internationally famous as the zany partner and comic foil of husband George Burns, her straight man, as the duo Burns and Allen. Burns and Allen would end their routines by Burns turning to Allen and saying, Say goodnight, Gracie. And in popular memory, Allen would reply, Goodnight, Gracie. In fact, this never happened, as recordings of their radio and television shows will attest. She simply said, Goodnight. This is one of Hollywood's most famous misquotes, kind of like the line, play it again, Sam, from Casablanca, or beam me up, Scotty, from Star Trek, both of which are close to lines actors actually spoke, but neither of which line is ever actually said, despite the fact that everyone remembers them that way. And speaking of Star Trek, don't forget that Burns and Allen were immortalized as the object of Captain Kirk and his crew's quest in Star Trek IV, the one with the whales. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the voyage home. I think we'll find what we're looking for at the Station Institute in Sausalito. A pair of humpback whales named George and Gracie. How do you know this? Simple logic. In later years, Burns admitted that he'd had a very brief extramarital affair. Stricken by guilt, he phoned his friend Jack Benny and told him about the indiscretion. But Alan overheard the conversation, and Burns quietly bought her an expensive centerpiece by way of apology. Nothing more was said, but years later, George discovered that Gracie had subsequently told one of her friends about the affair, finishing with, You know, I really wish George would cheat on me again. I could use a new centerpiece. On September 18th, John Diefenbaker, 13th Prime Minister of Canada, was born. He served as PM from 1957 to 1963, winning three elections, though only one of those was a majority. Diefenbaker appointed the first female minister in Canadian history to his cabinet, Ellen Fairclough, as well as the first Indigenous member of the Senate, James Gladstone. During his six years as Prime Minister, his government obtained passage of the Canadian Bill of Rights and granted the vote to the First Nations and Inuit peoples. In 1962, Diefenbaker's government eliminated racial discrimination in immigration policy. In foreign policy, his stance against apartheid helped secure the ouster of South Africa from the Commonwealth of Nations, but his indecision on whether to accept Bomark nuclear missiles from the United States led to his government's downfall. Diefenbaker is also remembered for his role in the 1959 cancellation of the Avro Aero fighter jet project. Joseph Frank Buster Keaton, American actor and film director, was born on November 10th. He's best known for his silent films, in which his trademark was physical comedy with a consistently stoic, deadpan expression that earned him the nickname The Great Stoneface. Critic Roger Ebert wrote of Keaton's, quote, extraordinary period from 1920 to 1929 as making him, quote, the greatest actor-director in the history of the movies. His 1926 film, The General, is widely viewed as his masterpiece. Orson Welles considered it, quote, the greatest comedy ever made, and perhaps the greatest film ever made. American aircraft industrialist, designer, and manufacturer John Knudsen Jack Northrop was also born on November the 10th. Beginning his career as an airplane design draftsman in 1916, Northrop founded a series of aircraft companies in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, including the one that bore his name, Northrop, which carried on until 1994 when it acquired Roy Grumman's company, which we talked about last episode, and became the Northrop Grumman Corporation, a global aerospace and defense technology company that builds things like the B-2 stealth bomber and the Global Hawk surveillance drone. And speaking of the B-2 stealth bomber, Jack Northrop's lifelong obsession was with flying wing aircraft, which he was convinced was the next major step in aircraft design. He produced a number of flying wing prototypes, including the Northrop N1M, Northrop N9M, the Northrop YB-35, and the Northrop YB-49 jet-powered heavy bomber. The failure of the flying wing to be selected as the next-generation bomber platform after World War II and the subsequent dismantling of all his prototypes came as a severe blow to him. He retired at age 57 in 1952 and virtually ended his association with the company that bore his name. Shortly before his death in the early 1980s, Northrop was given clearance to see designs and hold a scale model of the B-2 Spirit stealth bomber, the flying wing stealth bomber, 
which shared many design features of his YB35 and YB49. The B2, for example, has the same 172-foot wingspan as the jet-powered flying wing YB49. A variety of illnesses left him unable to walk or speak, so upon seeing the plans, Northrop reportedly wrote on a sheet of paper, quote, Now I know why God has kept me alive for 25 years. One of the B2 project designers present said, quote, As he held this model in his shaking hands, it was as if you could see his entire history with the flying wing passing through his mind. Northrop passed away 10 months later. And Albert Frederick Arthur George, better known as King George VI of the United Kingdom, the Dominions of the British Commonwealth, and the last Emperor of India, and father of Queen Elizabeth II, was born on the 14th of December, 1895. I could give you a rundown of the details of his life, but just go watch the King's speech in the first season of The Crown, and that pretty much covers everything you need to know. Famous deaths in 1895 include... On June 29th, English evolutionary biologist Thomas Henry Huxley dies. A biologist and anthropologist specializing in comparative anatomy and instrumental in developing scientific education in Britain, Huxley became known as Darwin's Bulldog for his advocacy of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, including most notably his famous 1860 debate at Oxford against Samuel Wilberforce. Huxley coined the term agnosticism in 1869 and elaborated on it in 1889 to frame the nature of claims in terms of what is knowable and what is not. Frederick Engels, German communist philosopher, dies on August 5th. A businessman, journalist, political activist, critic of political economy, historian, political theorist, and revolutionary socialist, Engels developed what is now known as Marxism together with Karl Marx, most notably in co-authoring the 1848 Communist Manifesto. On September the 26th, Ephraim Wales Bull, American farmer and horticulturalist, dies. In 1843, Bull began the deliberate process of breeding a grape that could thrive in the cold New England climate. By 1849, having planted 22,000 seedlings, he had created a large, sweet variety from a native species, which he called Concord, after the town in Massachusetts where he lived. However, within several years, competing growers had begun raising their own crops of Concord grapes, purchased from Bull for $5 per vine, and Bull saw little profit from the strain after the initial sales. He lived to be 89 years old and is buried in the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Concord with an epitaph that reads, He sowed, others reaped. As someone who could drink Concord grape juice until I drown, I salute you and your work, Mr. Bull. Louis Pasteur, French microbiologist, chemist, and personal hero of mine, dies on September 28th. Pasteur is renowned for his discoveries of the principles of vaccination, microbial fermentation, and pasteurization. His research in chemistry led to remarkable breakthroughs in the understanding of the causes and preventions of disease, which laid down the foundations of hygiene, public health, and much of modern medicine. His works are credited as saving millions of lives through the development of vaccines for rabies and anthrax. He's perhaps most famous for the sterilization technique that bears his name, pasteurization, which stops bacterial contamination of things like milk and wine. He's seen as the father of bacteriology, the father of microbiology, and one of the fathers of the germ theory of disease. It is no exaggeration to say that without his work and the foundation he laid for medicine in the 19th and 20th centuries, you and me, and a great many people we know and love, would not have made it alive out of childhood, nor lived as long as we have, nor as healthy as we have, and as we will hopefully continue to do so for a long while. As we discussed last episode, as part of the fallout from the First Sino-Japanese War, the Korean Empress Myung Song, known informally as Queen Min, was assassinated on October the 8th. She was to be the last Korean Empress. With the help of a traitorous regiment of Korean soldiers loyal to the Japanese, a group of former samurai, specifically recruited for the purpose, infiltrated the palace in the early morning of October the 8th and assassinated the Empress. She was 44 years old. In South Korea, there has been a renewed interest in Queen Min over the last 20 years due to popular novels, a film, a TV drama, and even South Korea's first original musical based on her life. Perhaps in keeping with her shifty ways in life, no one is quite sure whether Adele Spitzetter died on October 27th or 28th, 1895. A German actress and folk singer, Spitzetter is best remembered for her career as a con artist. Initially a promising young actress, when her theatrical success dwindled, Spitzetter became a well-known private banker in 19th century Munich. She ran what might be the first recorded Ponzi scheme, in which she offered large returns on investments by continually using the money of new investors to pay back the previous ones. 
At the height of her success, she was the wealthiest woman in Bavaria. Authorities took note of her success on the theory that things which are seemingly too good to be true usually are. She was brought to trial in 1872 with one little hiccup. Because no one had ever run a Ponzi scheme before, they weren't actually illegal at that point. Instead, Spitzetter was convicted of bad accounting and mishandling clients' money and sentenced to three years in prison. Her bank was closed, her personal fortune in art and cash was seized by the authorities, and her 32,000 clients lost 38 million gulden, the equivalent today of more than 480 million U.S. dollars. A wave of suicides followed. After her release from prison in 1876, Spitzetter lived off friends and benefactors, but could never quite shake the criminal life. She was repeatedly arrested and faced further trials and stretches in prison until her death. And finally, on November 27th, Alexandre Dumas, fils, French author and playwright, dies. Alexandre Dumas. Alexandre Dumas, fils, was born in Paris in 1824, the illegitimate child of a dressmaker and famed novelist and playwright Alexandre Dumas, père, author of classic works such as The Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask, and... Legally recognized by his father when he was seven, Dumas the Younger was best known for his romantic novel La Dame aux Camelliers, published in 1848, which was adapted into Giuseppe Verdi's 1853 opera La Traviata, The Fallen Woman, as well as numerous stage and film productions, usually titled Camille in English language versions. Although he admitted that he had done the adaptation because he needed the money, Dumas the Younger had such great success with the play that it started his career as a dramatist, and he virtually abandoned writing novels. He was admitted to the Académie Française in 1874, and awarded the French Legion of Honor in 1894. Dumas the Younger was not only more renowned than his father during his lifetime, but also dominated the serious French stage for most of the second half of the 19th century. Now then. Last time we left Tesla shattered emotionally and financially, standing over the smoldering slag heap that had once been his laboratory. This time, we'll look at how he began the monumental task of beginning again, how he, as he said to a reporter from the Electrical Review magazine, started to, quote, carve my way through or over the mountain suddenly planted in front of me. And, as 1896 dawns, we'll look at one of the truly enormous missed opportunities for discovery in Tesla's career. In the days after the fire, Tesla returned to the site and set his men to salvaging anything they could. It wasn't much. As he stood contemplating the ruins of his lab, Tesla must have realized the depth of his loss on multiple levels. He was broke. He had carried no insurance on his lab or its contents, and most of his personal fortune was tied up in the custom equipment that had been in the lab. There was no way what little cash he had on hand was going to be enough to rebuild and refurnish a laboratory. The irony, of course, was that in just a matter of weeks, the Century magazine would finally get around to its long-scheduled article by T.C. Martin on the wonders of Tesla's lab, now destroyed, at 3335 South 5th Avenue. It had taken more than a year to see print, and its dazzling multiple-exposure photographs, the first ever taken by fluorescent light of such stars of the day as Mark Twain, actor Joseph Jefferson, poet F. Marion Crawford, and Nikola Tesla himself, stood as mute witness to the lost wonders of Tesla's lab. A few nights after the fire, likely in an effort to distract himself from his troubles, Tesla dropped into the Players Club, where he was a member. Founded in 1888 by the actor Edwin Booth, remember him from episode 23? Member of the Booth family, the first family of American theater in the 19th century, the brother of presidential assassin John Wilkes Booth, and the man who, in a bizarre twist of fate, had once saved the life of Robert Lincoln, son of the president his brother would later kill? Yeah, that Edwin Booth. Founded by Edwin Booth, the Players Club combined people in the arts, actors, writers, sculptors, architects, and painters, with bankers, lawyers, and businessmen, and the occasional inventor. Put up for membership by the architect Stanford White, more on him in a minute, Tesla had fit right in, and it quickly became his favorite club. That night, in mid-March 1895, Tesla found the usual gathering of actors, musicians, and artists. With quick and kind sympathy, reported the New York Times, the group of performers, quote, immediately organized an impromptu benefit concert for his sole gratification, with an aggregation of talent that, had the public only known about it, would have given a substantial endowment for his new laboratory. Despite his attempt at self-distraction, however, Tesla was in a deep depression, and, to his credit, he knew it, 
I have been overwhelmed with generosity and sympathy this week, and feel this kindness deeply, even if I can make no response, he told the Electrical Review. I must carve my way through or over the mountain suddenly planted in front of me. Tesla's solution was electrotherapy. During his earliest work with high-frequency AC, Tesla had noted how electric currents affected the body, and during his many demonstrations he might have observed how shocks altered his mood. Plus, there was a tradition in popular medicine in mid-19th century America of using electric shocks from Ruhmkorff coils to treat a variety of ailments. Over the next few months, Tesla gave himself regular shocks, probably using one of his oscillating coils, in order to keep, quote, from sinking into a state of melancholia. I was so blue and discouraged in those days, he later told a reporter, that I don't believe I could have borne up but for the regular electric treatment which I administered to myself. You see, electricity puts into the tired body just what it most needs, life force, nerve force. It's a great doctor, I can tell you, perhaps the greatest of all doctors. Even T.C. Martin, who was trying to keep Tesla's spirits up, noted the difference that Tesla's self-administered electrotherapy made in the inventor's mood. If you did not get a daily bolster from me, you would have a relapse into dullness as you do when you miss your daily dose of electricity, he wrote to Tesla. Nevertheless, uh, I hope this goes without saying, but don't try this at home. As I said, to help keep up the inventor's spirits, T.C. Martin met with Tesla at a local cafe to give him more free copies of their book. He may also have given him some money. Your experiments have been repeated in Berlin under your name with the emperor's brother, Prince Henry, assisting, he told Tesla in a letter. The two men also reviewed Martin's forthcoming article on the destruction of the lab so that they included a full description of everything that had been lost. O'Neill and Margaret Cheney both suggest that at this time, after the fire, Edward Dean Adams of the Cataract Company came to the rescue by advancing Tesla $40,000 to outfit a new lab and help set up a new Tesla company. Unfortunately, O'Neill has his chronology wrong. The company that Adams and Tesla set up was incorporated in February 1895, prior to the fire, as we discussed last episode. Adams was already a partner, and thus he and Tesla and all the other partners suffered losses. Since Cheney's book is largely a better-written elaboration on O'Neill's work, which she accepts essentially uncritically, she suffers the same confusion in timeline. There was no new Tesla company founded after the lab fire. However, as Seifer points out in his Tesla biography, that doesn't mean Adams didn't give Tesla some money informally. Citing a letter, Tesla wrote to Robert Underwood Johnson that suggests as much. Combined with royalties from German patents on his polyphase motors and dynamos, Tesla had some money to live on, but he needed to raise additional revenue in order to open a new lab. There was nothing to do, of course, but start again. So, within a few days of the fire, and despite his ongoing depression, Tesla was out scouting new locations for a laboratory. In the meantime, Tesla turned to one lab where he knew the equipment he needed would be available to him. Because, after hearing of Tesla's total loss... Thomas Edison volunteered his lab in Llewellyn Park, New Jersey, for the inventor to use. Now, I've explained before on this podcast that I'm something of a Tesla-Edison rivalry skeptic. Were they competitors in business? Sure. Were they friends? No. But did they actively dislike each other, or were they the mortal cats and dogs enemies that popular memes on the internet make them out to be? No way. A lot of this supposed rivalry was ginned up by the press. In April 1895, for example, the Troy Press of New York ran an article entitled Edison's Rival and asked the question, who is king, Edison or Tesla? The actor Joseph Jefferson, a friend of Tesla, speaking in Boston, was reported in the press to have said, Edison has been deposed and Tesla has been coronated, new potentate. But did the two men themselves feel this sense of rivalry? I doubt it. Tesla and Edison had their disagreements, certainly. But fundamentally, they respected each other's achievements, and I don't think either of them wished ill on the other. So it was quite natural, then, that when Edison saw a fellow leading light, no pun intended, of American invention in trouble, he reached out to lend a hand. Was it maybe a little weird for Tesla, now that he found refuge in the same laboratory space where, just a few years before, during the ugliest phase of the War of the Currents, one Harold Brown had been electrocuting dogs and calves and horses to prove AC power was unsafe? Yeah, probably. But beggars can't be choosers. And so, for the next few weeks, Nikola Tesla rolled up his sleeves at Tom Edison's workshop in New Jersey. He's a man of very regular habits, the New York Sun noted of Tesla, wherein he differs from Edison, who works 50 or 75 hours at a stretch, sometimes longer, when he has on hand something that interests him. Tesla is up every morning at six and a half o'clock. He has a lot of gymnastic exercises that he goes through with regularity. He has a light breakfast, and then he loses little time getting to his work. 
He takes an hour for his luncheon in the middle of the day, and the afternoon is devoted to hard work. He usually works until 8 o'clock in the evening, but often it is until midnight. But Tesla's commute to New Jersey was only ever meant to be temporary. Within a few weeks, he had secured a new lab in Manhattan, just below Greenwich Village, near Chinatown, renting the 6th and 7th floor of the building at 46th East Houston Street, at the corner of Houston and Mulberry. Bonus fun fact for today. The first time I went to New York, which was partially a research trip about Tesla and partially a trip about asking my then-girlfriend, now-wife, to marry me, I learned the hard way that while the street name is spelled the same way as Houston, as in the city of, if you don't want to look like some know-nothing tourist, <clears throat> it is in fact pronounced Houston Street. The street was named for William Houston, a delegate for Georgia to the Continental Congress and later the U.S. Constitutional Convention, who married into a prominent New York family, the Bayards, who also have a street in Manhattan named for them, by the way. Houston Street occupies land that once belonged to the Houston and Bayard families. It's unclear precisely when Tesla first started using this lab on the regular. Cheney reports that he had a telephone line installed right away, with the old-fashioned exchange of Spring 299, but O'Neill and Carlson both say that Tesla really began working at the Houston Street Lab in July 1895. I'm wondering whether the July date is more when the lab was really ready for day-to-day work and experimentation, because as early as March 22nd, Tesla was writing with requests for new equipment to Albert Schmidt, General Superintendent of the Westinghouse Pittsburgh Headquarters, who we met way back in episode 12 when he was one of Westinghouse's chief designers, working with Tesla on fleshing out the inventor's AC system. You have, no doubt, Tesla wrote, learned through the papers of the unfortunate accident which has deprived me of all my apparatus, and of some results of my recent work. I must now rebuild my laboratory. You will greatly oblige me if you will do what is in your power to ship what is required with the least possible delay. And again, quote, let me know immediately what is the smallest size rotating two-phase transformer you have in stock. For a guy who was essentially broke, Tesla, as was his way through virtually his whole life, felt money was no object. I shall rely, as to the price, entirely on the fairness of the Westinghouse Company, Tesla said, concluding. I believe that there are gentlemen in that company who believe in a hereafter. Only days later, Tesla wrote Schmidt again and asked that the machinery be sent by costly express rather than as freight, being impatient to get going on his interrupted research. Tesla also wrote Westinghouse engineer Charles Scott, who had supervised the AC generator installation at the Telluride Gold King Mine we talked about back in episode 21, asking him to help expedite the orders. This kind of work is almost essential to my health, Tesla explained. Within a few weeks, the requested machinery began to arrive, and since I'm assuming Tesla didn't have the equipment shipped to New Jersey, while he might not have worked full-time from the new lab until July 1895, Tesla probably had possession of the Houston Street facility by late March or early April 1895, ready to receive freight and other deliveries. These other deliveries included some early Tesla models which had been saved from the World's Fair and gifted back to Tesla by Westinghouse Vice President and General Manager Samuel Bannister. However, now that Westinghouse had Tesla's new address, that also meant they were able to start billing him, not just for the new equipment he had ordered, but also for the cost of machinery lost in the fire which was on loan from the Westinghouse company to Tesla. Given Tesla's somewhat flexible relationship to money, it must have been a source of consternation that Westinghouse was expecting to be paid for these new machines, or that they were charging him for equipment that had been destroyed. Tesla was many things, but a good capitalist was never one of them. The Westinghouse Corporation had just secured two massive contracts in two entirely separate fields, including one for electric railway transportation, which to Tesla's mind was outside his original contract with Westinghouse, Surely given this fact and the fact that Tesla's personal connection and conjoling had brought aboard Edward Dean Adams, John Jacob Astor, and William Birch Rankine to the Niagara Company, not to mention convinced Adams to go with AC rather than DC in the first place, surely the corporation could overlook a few thousand dollars owed, right? Tesla would continue, somewhat naively, to bring new potential clients to Pittsburgh to meet with Westinghouse people, almost as if he were some sort of private ambassador. Perhaps, he thought, this would lead to future financial support from the Westinghouse Company, but he would never receive an additional compensation for the service. As they had when Tesla spent 1888 in Pittsburgh working alongside them, the engineers and managers at Westinghouse seemed to mostly feel like Tesla was an annoyance, and in their way, of getting on with the business of making a fortune electrifying the world. Fresh from his use of Edison's lab, 
Tesla joined Edison and Alexander Graham Bell at the National Electrical Exposition in Philadelphia in May 1895. As part of the exposition, for the first time ever, Tesla's AC was transmitted 500 miles at a single go, dwarfing the record sent by the old 100-mile Laufen-Frankfurt transmission line in 1890 that we talked about in episode 21. The most amazing thing at this exposition, Edison remarked, is the demonstration of the ability to deliver here an electric current generated at Niagara Falls. To my mind, it solves one of the most important questions associated with electrical development. Now, does that sound like someone who is mortal enemies with Nikola Tesla? No. And even more so since Edison had to admit that the AC system worked better than his DC system would have. Bell concurred, stating, quote, This long-distance transmission of electric power was the most important discovery of electric science that has been made for many years. For his part, Tesla told the press, quote, I'm now convinced beyond any question that it is possible to transmit electricity by water power to commercial advantage over a distance of 500 miles at half the cost of generation by steam or coal. I'm willing to stake my reputation and my life upon this declaration. No record exists of what was said between Tesla and Edison on this occasion, but as Seifer suggests in his biography, quote, it seems likely that each was privately amused by the rivalry played out in the press, that Tesla thanked Edison for the temporary use of his laboratory, and that Edison expressed his condolences for the loss of Tesla's workplace. On May 4th, back in Manhattan, Tesla joined the Johnsons for the dedication ceremony of the new Washington Square Park Arch, a permanent marble replacement for the temporary plaster and wood arch erected in 1889 to celebrate the centenary of George Washington's inauguration as President of the United States. Situated as the gateway to Washington Square Park right at the end of Fifth Avenue, the arch was just a 10-minute walk from Tesla's new lab on Houston Street, so practically in the neighborhood. Designed by Stanford White, who we mentioned before, the arch was modeled on the Arch of Titus, a Roman triumphal arch, though it stood taller and wider than any such arch raised by the Romans or the Greeks. White, you'll recall, was an architect of great renown, having designed the Players Club, the Second Madison Square Garden, the Boston Public Library, the restoration of the Rotunda at the University of Virginia, the Tennis Club in swanky Newport, Rhode Island, the Agricultural Pavilion for the Chicago World's Fair, various churches, and the Fifth Avenue mansions of both the Vanderbilts and the Astors. Another of White's projects, as we've discussed, was the main power plant at Niagara, and so it's likely that Edward Dean Adams introduced White to Tesla. Tesla would often run into White at the offices of the Century magazine, where the artist would be commissioned to illustrate their covers, at the Players Club, or at meetings involving the Niagara Falls Enterprise at Delmonico's, the Waldorf, the Theatre, or Madison Square Garden Roof Restaurant. The two men would also socialize outside business hours, with White, his wife Bessie, and their son Lawrence being amongst the final visitors to get a private demonstration in Tesla's South Fifth Avenue lab before it burned down. My dear Tesla, White wrote shortly after the visit, I cannot thank you too much for your kindness in showing all your wonderful experiments the other day. They made a deep impression on me, as they did everyone, and I'm going to see them again someday soon, if you'll let me. Sincerely yours, Stanford White. Perhaps looking to buoy Tesla's spirits in his own way, White invited the inventor to a very exclusive dinner on May 20th, 1895 at the Manhattan Photography Studio of James L. Breeze. Ostensibly a 10th wedding anniversary celebration for polo player John Elliott Cowden, Cowden's wife was not invited, but more than 30 of his prominent male friends were. Maybe you can guess where this is headed. Yeah, scandal. A trendsetter and sensualist, White, though married, was a well-known Lothario. He was said to know the color of the boudoir of every woman of note in the city, and not because he was a talented interior decorator in addition to being an architect. What Tesla showed up for that evening became known as the Girl in the Pie Banquet. Like I said, scandal. The all-male guest list was a who's who of the New York social scene of the 1890s. Amongst them were illustrator Charles Dana Gibson of Gibson Girl fame, famous architect Whitney Warren, painters John Twachman, Alan Weir, and Edward Simmons, artists Auguste Saint-Gaudin and Robert Reed, the inventor Peter Cooper Howard, Robert Rankin, a famous Harvard athlete in his day, and Wall Street broker the ironically named Henry W. Poor. Over the course of the evening, a dozen scantily clad young women served a 21-course meal to the men, the dinners having been shipped from Sherry's, a swanky restaurant that catered, no pun intended, to the 400 and New York's society set. The young women in attendance, and they were certainly all young, were drawn from the ranks of artists' models, which usually included nude modeling, who made the rounds of artists' and photographers' studios around New York. 
At the culmination of the feast, with the band playing four and twenty blackbirds, the young ladies returned in even more provocative outfits, singing and wheeling out a pie the size of a small automobile. According to the San Francisco Chronicle account, published toward the end of 1895, and you know things are scandalous if a paper on the other side of the country is reporting about it months after the fact, here's what happened next. Quote, The pie divided as if by magic, and falling apart, disclosed Susie Johnson, the 16-year-old model. A great bevy of canaries, which had been enclosed with her, flew into the room and perched on easels, on pictures, anywhere they could find refuge. Then there was a great shout, a tribute of applause to the man who had planned the surprise, and a young model was lifted from the table to the floor. The 16-year-old Susie Johnson was wearing nothing but sheer black gauze. Now, if attending this kind of dinner sounds out of character for Tesla, who, in addition to germophobia, remember, had hang-ups about women's hair and certain types of women's jewelry, like pearl earrings, if this whole thing seems out of character to you, well, you're not alone. It seems out of character to me, too. The fact that he was there is not in dispute. However, part of me wonders if he knew quite what he was signing up for when he agreed to the invitation. Perhaps he should have known, given Stanford White's reputation, that things weren't going to be on the up and up, but we've already seen that Tesla could be somewhat naive from time to time, and perhaps this is an instance of such naivete. This is definitely giving Tesla the benefit of the doubt here, of course, because the alternative, well... And what's going on here seems pretty pervy. In any case... Word of the girl in the pie banquet was kept hush-hush by all in attendance until October of 1895, when somebody spilled the beans to the New York World and then to other papers. The incident would find a second life several years later as part of the coverage when Stanford White got himself shot to death by a jealous husband. But we'll get there in a few episodes. With one girl in the pie banquet likely providing enough excitement for quite some time, and with his new lab space available, Tesla spent the summer of 1895 throwing himself into his work. With so much of his apparatus custom-designed and built, it would take Tesla well into 1896 to get back to where he had been prior to the fire. However, his lines of inquiry were not to remain the same as they were before the conflagration. Realizing that investors and manufacturers weren't interested in licensing or buying the patents for his system of wireless lighting, Tesla shifted from promoting an entire system to emphasizing components. Through 1895 and 1896, he redesigned his oscillating transformer, what others were now calling a Tesla coil, into a compact device that could take power from existing electrical circuits and step it up to high voltage and high frequency. Tesla then used this improved oscillating transformer to power a new vacuum tube lamp, which he claimed gave out more light and was more efficient than Edison's incandescent lamps. To demonstrate the power of this new lamp, Tesla posed for a portrait that now required only a two-second exposure from his new light source instead of the lengthy exposures needed just a year earlier to take the photos that had appeared in the century. Tesla also began dedicating more effort to developing his ideas for the wireless transmission of power, as well as two new areas, radio control and x-rays. More on that in a minute. In October, a 22-year-old well-mannered stenographer named George Sheriff walked into Tesla's laboratory and applied for a job. The inventor reviewed the secretary's credentials and hired him. Although Sheriff knew nothing about electrical engineering, Tesla was impressed by his demeanor and intelligence, and within a few days, the youth was busy at work, transcribing papers and taking over the general management of the office. Though he couldn't know it when he hired him, Sheriff was to become an indispensable figure in Tesla's life for the remainder of the inventor's days. Starting off as his secretary, Sheriff would eventually become Tesla's financial and legal advisor, bookkeeper, office manager, stockholder, and during acute financial squeezes, a nearly always reliable source of small loans. He was Tesla's most loyal and least dispensable employee, tolerating the long hours, scanty rewards, and the occasional thoughtlessness of his boss without complaint. He also never spilled the tea on Tesla's life or private matters, taking whatever secrets he knew to his grave. Also in October, Tesla took some time to attend a series of lectures on Buddhism and Hinduism by Swami Vivekananda, the Hindu monk and philosopher and chief disciple of the 19th century Indian mystic Ramakrishna. Tesla and the Swami likely first crossed paths during the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, where Vivekananda was a featured speaker during the Parliament of World's Religions, the largest of the congresses held in conjunction with the World's Fair. After this, Tesla forwarded a book on Buddhism to Robert Underwood Johnson, freshly returned from a summer in Italy, where he had received a decoration from King Humbert for his work on securing a law for international copyright. 
My dear friend and faithful stranger, Johnson wrote back, I'm touched by your remembrance of me in sending the book. I'll drop into your laboratory someday for old acquaintance sake. Glad to know you are again in town and established in the beautiful Johnson Mansion, Tessa wrote to Catherine Johnson. I cannot say as much for my laboratory, which is still in need of furnishing. He filled her in on the latest gossip about Stanford White, about Swami Vivekananda's lectures on the external nature of God and the transmigration of souls, and of how Tesla had spent the summer courting investment from various millionaires. There was railroad magnate and U.S. Senator Chauncey Depew, J. Beaver Webb, a fleet captain, shipbuilder, and confidant of J.P. Morgan, Darius Ogden Mills, a stock market manipulator and principal in GE, who owned the New York Tribune and who had made his fortune in San Francisco during the California Gold Rush. He was also, after J.P. Morgan, the second private citizen in history to have his home illuminated by electricity. And there was John Jacob Astor IV. Late in 1895, Tesla began to pressure Edward Dean Adams to influence Astor to invest in the Tesla company. Tesla met with Astor and J. Beaver Webb on December 19th to make his pitch for his wireless lighting system. I'm impressed with your endeavor, Mr. Tesla, was Astor's reply, although as I understand it, your latest inventions are yet to reach the point of being marketed. Nevertheless, I'll speak to Mr. Adams. By all means, let's keep the door open. Tesla telephoned Adams that afternoon and wrote Astor the following day, My dear Mr. Astor, Adams would be only too glad to have you with us. We agreed that we would jointly provide from 500 to 1,000 shares of the parent company for yourself and Mr. Webb at a price of $95 a share of a par value of $100 each. The parent company owns my patents and rights in foreign and domestic markets, which I believe will profoundly affect the present state of the mechanical and electrical arts, and will create a greater revolution in their applications than my ideas on the transmission of power, which are, at present, generally adopted. This lack of enthusiasm from Astor must have been all the more frustrating for Tesla, given Astor's complete gullibility when it came to which inventors and inventions to believe in. As even T.C. Martin noted in correspondence, Astor was absolutely in thrall to John Ernst Worrell Keeley, a fraudulent inventor from Philadelphia who claimed to have discovered a vaporic or etheric force which would provide power to a motor. After securing backing from a number of wealthy and prominent individuals, chief amongst them John Jacob Astor IV, and despite numerous requests from the stockholders of the Keeley Motor Company, which had been established to produce this motor, he refused to reveal to them the principles on which it operated and repeatedly refused demands to produce a marketable product by claiming that he needed to perform more tests. Like I said, it must have been frustrating for Tesla given that, if anything, his work was farther along and being ready for market and he at least had a track record of successful invention and innovation. With Christmas drawing near, Tesla accepted an invitation to have Christmas dinner with the Johnsons at their Lexington Avenue mansion. While Tesla no doubt enjoyed his time there and catching up with Robert after his jaunt through Europe and talking shop with the Johnson's son Owen, Catherine Johnson remained as thirsty as ever. Torn between loving a professorial and delightful gentleman in her husband Robert, who could count amongst his friends Mark Twain, John Muir, Rudyard Kipling, and Teddy Roosevelt, and an exotic, internationally known inventor, well, for Catherine it seemed no choice at all. She did everything she could to get Tesla alone when he visited. She made little secret to him of her feelings. One wonders how much Robert might have known about his wife's obsession with the inventor on more than just a friendly level. And she even claimed a psychic connection to Tesla, which she referred to in correspondence as thought transference. I have often wished and meant to speak to you of this, she told Tesla, but when I am with you I never say the things I had intended to say. I seem to be only capable of one thing. Oh my. After such an eventful year, Tesla could be forgiven for thinking that the last few days of 1895 would be quiet and uneventful. He may have been looking forward to putting 1895 behind him and being done with such a difficult year. 1895, however, wasn't done with Nikola Tesla. Because a few days before New Year's, Tesla and the whole global scientific community was taken by storm by William Rotengen and his announcement at a meeting of the Physical Medical Society of Würzburg in Germany of a previously unknown energy emanating from his Leonard and Crookes cathode ray tubes, which he termed X-Strahlen, or X-rays, to indicate their unknown nature. By the 6th of January, 1896, the New York Sun reported that Rotengen had discovered, quote, the light that never was, which could apparently illuminate light-sensitive chemicals at the far end of a room, penetrate solid objects, and photograph the internal organs and bones of a living being. 
Though they didn't know this at the time, X-rays are a form of electromagnetic radiation located beyond ultraviolet light on the electromagnetic spectrum and which are produced when a stream of fast electrons hits a metal target in an evacuated glass tube, such as a Crookes cathode ray tube. Rotengen and his X-rays were an overnight global sensation. Physicist Michael Pupin wrote, quote, No other discovery within my lifetime had ever aroused the interest of the world, as did the discovery of the X-rays. Every physicist dropped his own problems and rushed headlong into the research. The first clinical X-ray in North America, for instance, is believed to have been made in the basement of Reed Hall at Dartmouth College on February 4, 1896 by a laboratory assistant, less than two months after news of Rotengen's discovery. Tesla himself produced nine articles on what he liked to call shadowgraphs over a two-year period. Today, we use X-rays, the rays, to produce X-rays, the images, kind of the same way that Xerox started as a noun and became a verb. But when they were first discovered, all the terminology was up for grabs. So Tesla chose the word shadowgraph after a term from Soren Kierkegaard, who described them in his essay, Either Or. To the existential philosopher, they were sketches that derive from the darker side of life, but are not directly visible. Quote, The shadowgraph does not become perceptible until I see through the external. Not until I look through it do I discover that inner picture too delicately drawn to be outwardly visible, woven as it is of the tenderest moods of the soul. Not a bad description of an x-ray image, actually. While Tesla never left any doubt that the discoverer of x-rays was William Rotengen, it is also true that Tesla had at least two missed opportunities to discover them himself. The first time was at the end of 1894. Tesla was investigating whether his lamps affected photographic plates in the same way as light coming from the sun or other sources of illumination. Over the course of several months, with the help of photographer Dickinson Alley, the pair tried a variety of phosphorescent lamps, crooks tubes, and vacuum bulbs with different kinds of electrodes. It was never a major project for either man, so they worked on it sporadically with Ali storing spare glass photographic plates in a corner of Tesla's laboratory. Over time, however, they noticed that the unexposed photographic plates had unaccountable marks and defects, indicating that they had somehow been spoiled. Tesla wondered, in passing, if the plates might have been affected by cathode rays, which were a stream of charged particles that passed between the electrodes in some of his vacuum tubes when a high voltage was applied across the electrodes. Tesla had recently read reports about how a Hungarian student of Heinrich Hertz, Philip Leonard, was getting interesting results using tubes with an aluminum window that allowed the rays to pass out of the tube. However, before he could follow up on his hunch, his laboratory burned down. The second missed opportunity came a few months later. This time, Tesla partnered with fellow inventor Edward Ringwood Hewitt, who was doing photographic research at the time. Tesla and Edward decided to try making some photographs using Geissler tubes as the light source and arranged for Mark Twain to pose for the photo. Because the light coming from the Geissler tube was weak, Twain had to sit still for 15-minute exposure with his head supported by a headrest. To keep Twain amused during his sitting, Mrs. Hewitt read to him. A few days later, when they checked how the portrait turned out, they were disappointed to find that the glass photographic plate had somehow been spoiled. Hewitt let the matter drop until he heard a few months later about the discovery of x-rays. Because in exploring this new phenomenon, Rotengen found that while various materials were transparent to x-rays, photographic plates were sensitive to them. This was how Rotengen came to make the first shadowgram of the bones in his wife's hand. Upon reading about Rotengen's discovery, Hewitt rushed to Tesla's laboratory to get a look at their supposedly spoiled negatives. As Hewitt recounted, quote, Tesla brought it out of the dark room and held it up to the light. There I saw the picture of the circle of the lens, with the adjusting screw at the side, also round dots, which represented the metal wood screws in the front of the wooden camera. Tesla gave one look, then he slammed the plate on the floor, breaking it into a thousand pieces, exclaiming, Damned fool, I never saw it! The crook's tubes they'd been using for light had also been giving off x-rays, spoiling the plate before the cap had even been taken off the camera lens. Neither Tesla nor Hewitt, wrote Noel F. Bush in Life magazine in 1946, realized until later, when Rotengen announced the discovery of x-rays, that the picture of Twain was in fact an example of x-ray photography, the first ever made in the U.S. Mark Twain had sat still for nothing, and Tesla had missed making a major scientific discovery. Nevertheless, Tesla sought to make up for lost time. As he told the New York Times a few weeks later, he began his experiments within half an hour after the news of Professor Rotengen's discovery was cabled across the Atlantic. He began true to the scientific method by replicating Rotengen's experiments and then performing an exhaustive set of experiments and techniques 
the results of which he published beginning in March 1896 in a series of articles in the Electrical Review. He quickly understood that other researchers were limited in their efforts thanks to the low-power Rumkorf coils, or electrostatic generators powering their tubes. Tesla instead began powering his tubes using his new compact oscillating transformer. By using a Tesla coil to power his study, Tesla was able to throw 4 million volts into generating x-rays. At first, the bulb will get hot and glow with a purplish hue, then the electrode will disintegrate and the bulb will cool, reported Tesla. From this point on, the bulb is in a very good condition for producing the Rotengen shadows. By taking advantage of the higher voltages and frequencies generated by his device, Tesla was able to produce more powerful x-rays than many of his contemporaries. I am producing shadows at a distance of 40 feet, I repeat 40 feet and even more, reported Tesla in March 1896. During the next few months, Tesla kept his glass blower busy as he experimented with dozens of different tubes and corresponded with Hewitt about ways of testing them. Of the various competing inventors studying x-rays at this time, the New York Mail and Express reported, quote, Oliver Lodge announced apparatus by which he saw through a man. A few days later, Mr. Edison proclaimed that he had an apparatus with which he had seen through two men. Within a week, Mr. Tesla produced rays of such penetrating power that they went clear through three men. When this was shown to Mr. Edison, the great man, who hasn't a spark of jealousy in his nature, smiled and said, Well, let's stop it at three. What do you say? I think three men will do as well and prove as much as a regiment. For his part, Edison did what Edison always did. Try to use the new discovery to devise some practical invention that would make money. Taking advantage of the public's enthusiasm for the mysterious new rays, Edison made a number of fluoroscopes in the form of boxes with peepholes and placed them on display at the Electrical Exposition of 1896 at the Grand Central Palace in New York. This was the first opportunity Americans had to see their skeletal shadows, and they clamored for a place in line. Many, however, were disappointed to learn that they would not be allowed to view their brains in action. A gambler wrote to Edison asking for an x-ray device which he could use to surreptitiously scan the Pharaoh dealer's cards. And in something right out of the pages of old comic books, Prudes worried about the danger of unscrupulous manufacturers making x-ray binoculars allowing you to see right through people's clothes. I'm out there, Jerry, and I'm loving every minute. One of Tesla's first shadowgraphs was the right shoulder of a man, showing the ribs, shoulder bones, and bones of the upper arm. Another image was a picture of a foot with a shoe on, and every fold of the leather, trousers, stockings is still visible, while the flesh and bones stand out sharply. Tesla secured a picture of his own skull by exposing his head for 20 to 40 minutes. In one instance, an exposure of 40 minutes gave clearly not only the outline, but the cavity of the eye, the lower jaw and connections to the upper one, the vertebral column and connections to the skull, the flesh, and even the hair, reported Tesla. During the exposure, he wrote, There is a tendency to sleep, and the time seems to pass away quickly. There is a general soothing effect, and I have felt a sensation of warmth in the upper part of the head. With Madame Curie not yet having proven the existence and danger of radioactivity, Tesla, like his contemporaries, initially regarded x-rays as benign. However, both he and his assistants soon experienced eye strain, headaches, and burns on the skin of their hands. At first, Tesla attributed these injuries to the ozone produced when running the tubes at high voltages, but he came to realize that the rays themselves were what was causing the damage. Others did too. Edison, already hard of hearing, damaged his eyes with x-ray exposure. One of his assistants contracted a gradually spreading skin cancer, from which he died several years later. Tesla described carefully the effects of x-rays upon his own eyes, body, hands, and brain, differentiating between skin burns and what he considered to be internal effects. He reported receiving frequent, sudden, and painful shocks in the eye from x-ray equipment. His hands were also repeatedly exposed. In a severe case, he wrote, the skin gets deeply colored and blackened in places, and ugly, ill-foreboding blisters form. Thick layers come off, exposing the raw flesh. Burning pain, feverishness, and such symptoms are, of course, but natural accompaniments. One single injury of this kind in the abdominal region to a dear and zealous assistant, the only accident that ever happened to anyone but myself in all my laboratory experience, I had the misfortune to witness. This incident, which particularly upset Tesla, happened when his assistant was exposed for five minutes to an x-ray tube positioned 11 inches from his body. In his later papers on x-rays and in a lecture to the New York Academy of Science in 1897, Tesla recommended using a grounded aluminum shield around the x-ray tube, that people avoid getting too close to the tube, and that exposure times be limited. 
Next time, we'll join Tesla as he pivots from rays to waves, taking his first steps into the world of radio control. And we'll also watch as one of his closest friendships implodes in spectacular and very public fashion. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link to the show on your social media. Remember, until the end of April 2022, if you leave a review of this show over at podchaser.com, they will donate to the World's Central Kitchen to help feed Ukrainian refugees, and a number of podcast hosting companies will match all funds raised. Go to podchaser.com slash Podcast directly to leave your review. Past episodes, as well as the show notes for this episode, can be found on our website at teslapodcast.com. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at katowich.com or on Twitter with the handle at ourmancato. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Katowich. Say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight. Goodnight.